Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. By God's grace, this morning we want to finish our study of Romans chapter 11, in which will conclude our study of the three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, and it will take us through the first half of Romans, which is the doctrinal portion of the epistle. There's a very significant and formal separation between chapters 11 and chapters 12, and we'll comment on that in a few moments. There are 90 verses in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Arminians do not know what to do with these three chapters. A university in this city that calls itself the world's most unusual university, in their syllabus for New Testament study for their freshman class, when they get to Romans 9 through 11, they basically summarize it with one sentence. These three chapters belong to Israel. That's convenient when you're an Arminian because you don't want to deal with what's in these chapters. All that they get out of 90 verses are these. Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't give it a context. and They do not know what it is saying or what it means. And Romans 11, 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer. And they imagine some future Jewish super state in this world with a temple being built in Jerusalem, animal sacrifices being restored, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sitting on some ridiculous throne in the Middle East, surrounded by sand that is pretty much worthless. They get two verses out of 90. By God's grace, we have been through these three chapters. And every verse is precious indeed. And let me briefly remind you of them as we make our way to the last part of Romans chapter 11. I hope that you can remember some of the things that we've studied and covered. You rejoiced in your hearts. You you expressed some of that joy to me in days, weeks, months, and even years gone by as we've covered these three chapters. In verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul states very clearly in that second verse that he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for his kinsmen, his brethren according to the flesh. These were elect Israelites that had all the privileges of being part of the olive tree that had been built with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it goes on to describe those blessings in verses 4 and 5. These are elect Israelites that are the emphasis of the apostles' concern and care because he tells us in 2 Timothy 2.10, that he endured all things for the elect's sakes. If you don't make this the elect Israel, then he has continual sorrow and heaviness in his heart for those that he was not going to put forth any effort for. I hope that's understandable to you. These these are elect Israelites in 1 through 5. There is a statement of the doctrine of election and reprobation in the nation of Israel in verse 6. The second half of that verse, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. That's almost amusing language, but it is stating to us that not everyone that was a national Israelite was an elect Israelite. Within the superset of all the Jews, there were elect Jews. And the apostle states the doctrine in verse 6. He proved it, he illustrated it, let's say, in verses 7 down through 13, by showing that within the descendants of Abraham there was a a division made, within the twins of Isaac and Rebekah there was a division made between Jacob and Esau. He illustrates it. 
Then he proves it theologically in verses 14 through 24. You know, 14 starts out with, what shall we say then? This fact that God chose one son of eight from Abraham to be the sons of God, God chose one son out of two twins of Isaac and Rebekah to love, and he hated the other, is their unrighteousness with God. That is what the natural man would bring up to these, this illustration of election. The answer, God forbid. Verse 15, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that is why we should give God all the glory and praise for His mercy because He has chosen to have His mercy and there isn't one thing in us that deserves mercy. It is impossible to deserve mercy. Mercy is something given when there is no desert for it. That's why I love to call the definition of grace or mercy demerited favor. I've heard Arminians for many years call it unmerited favor, but it's just not that we haven't merited God's grace or His mercy. We've demerited it because we have merited His judgment instead. And so it goes forward. It says in verse 16, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. All human conditions, all human means, all human instrumentality are out of the question when it comes to God's mercy and grace in salvation resulting in children of God. And he proceeds to describe The apostle describes the great God as the potter in verse 21. And he says that he has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor in that verse. They are called vessels of glory and vessels of wrath in verses 22 and 23. And then he says in verse 24 that this body of God's children, the vessels of honor, the vessels of glory, are some of the Gentiles and some of the Jews by virtue of the words, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. To be of the Jews means that it's only some of them. To be of the Gentiles means it's only some of them. Then in verses 25 through 29 of Romans chapter 9, we have four passages of Scripture quoted where the Apostle, proving to his audience by the Old Testament Scriptures that there had always been an election within the nation of Israel. And so it is proved from Scripture. Then he concludes in the final four verses, 30 through 33, about the fact that the majority of Israel had rejected the gospel and were not responding to it. That is Romans chapter 9. I have been over that outline many times with you, and the purpose is this. I don't want you to forget it. I want you to remember that the apostle began with a wonderful preamble in verses 1 through 5, stated the doctrine, illustrated the doctrine, proved it from theology, proved it from Scripture, and then showed that the response to the gospel was poor indeed. And so we come to Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, in the first four verses... Like the first five verses of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul expresses his desire for the conversion of elect Israelites. 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Is not the Apostle's desire to get more names in the book of life, but to find those elect Israelites whose names were in the book of life where God wrote them before the world began, for them to see the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they no longer needed the law of Moses in order to be established righteous before God. And so those first four verses are his desire for elect Israel to be converted. And we don't have time to go through all the proofs again this morning. It's obvious. If you end up with any other situation, you contradict 2 Timothy 2.10, where the Apostle Paul said his labors were for the elect of God, And second of all, he's asking for something that in Romans chapter 9 he has already denied. 
that God had made a choice that they all couldn't be saved and wouldn't be saved because He had purposed to save His elect. In Romans 9, and Romans 10 is not contradicting Romans 9. We understand the Israel in Romans 10.1 to be elect Israel. And we have established that substantially in previous sermons from this chapter. In verse 5 is a summary statement of how you could be righteous before God by the law of Moses. In verses 6 through 9 is a summary statement of justification before God of the New Testament for Christians. The justification under the gospel and how you could lay claim to Jesus Christ's finished work by faith. Verses 10 through 13 show the universal applicability of the new gospel. The gospel of justification by Jesus Christ. It shows that it's for Jews and Gentiles alike. Then in verses 14 through 15, it's got to be preached for anyone to hear it to be able to be saved from Moses' law or any other false idea of salvation. Verses 16 through 18, the apostle explains why aren't they believing? Have they not heard? Indeed they had heard. The gospel had gone into all the world, as it says in verse 18, Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the end of the world. The gospel was now as universal as the creation of the heavens. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and that the the natural creation preaches a sermon that everyone has heard, so that man is without excuse. But the apostle uses those words for the preaching of the gospel, because by this time, the gospel had been preached as far as that world extended. In God's understanding and definition, it had been preached that far. And why weren't they believing? And then the apostle brings up the scriptures again, as he always does, especially when he's dealing with an issue of Israel, because the Old Testament was about Israel, he brings up Bible passages. And so in verses 19 through 21, he quotes a couple of passages pointing out that God had warned Israel that if they did not receive his gospel and believe it, then he would take it from them and give it to Gentiles, provoking them to jealousy. And we come to chapter 11 which is what it's all about. Taking the gospel away from the Jews and giving it to the Gentiles to provoke those Jews to jealousy. And what kind of Jews are we dealing with? We are dealing with elect Jews. In Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, is a description again and a summary statement of the division that God had made within the nation of Israel. There was an election and there was the rest. The election was by grace. The election was God's reservation of a group of people to Himself just like he had reserved 7,000 in the days of Elijah. Because he explains that in verse 2-4, through that Elijah had once asked God that he was the only one left. And God said, no, you're not the only one left. I have 7,000 that I have reserved to myself. And verse 5 says, even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant, according to the election of grace. And if it's by grace, according to verse 6, it can't be of works, Because grace and works are mutually exclusive terms. They cannot be mixed, matched, or coordinated. And they're not the means, the instrument, or the condition for one another. And then verses 8 through 10 are quotations showing that God had blinded the non-elect Israelites that they wouldn't recognize Christ. And that prophecy is preached throughout Matthew chapter 13, John chapter 12, Acts chapter 28, Acts chapter 13. It's stated many times that God had blinded that generation of Israelites because of their rejection of His prophets and of the visit of His Son to them. 
When we come to verse 11 of Romans chapter 11, it's the most important verse in understanding what Romans 11 is speaking of. And there in Romans 11.11, we made a choice, just like we did in 10.1, that we were dealing with elect Israelites. And we established it by many different ways that 11.11, when it says, have they stumbled that they should fall, are elect Israelites. Because, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But through their fall, the fall of the Israelites in verse 11 is only a partial fall. It's only a temporary fall. It's not a damning fall. It's not a final fall like the fall of vessels of dishonor or vessels of wrath. I hope the review... I'm going. I'm giving you this review because I want you to remember these three chapters as we go into another section of the book of Romans. 11 is very important. Verses 11 through 15 are describing elect Israel on how some of elect Israel stumbled over the gospel of Jesus Christ for two reasons. And they're given in verse 11 for the first time. Now they're repeated throughout. But in verse 11 it says, Have they, and we understand that to be elect Israelites, have elect Israelites stumbled that they should fall? No, they haven't fallen from God's grace. They haven't fallen out of the book of life. They haven't fallen from eternal life. God forbid. But rather, through their fall that comes far short of that, just their fall out of the olive tree, their fall from kingdom privileges, their fall from gospel conversion, here's what it brought about. Through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. The gospel has been redirected to be preached to Gentiles so that Gentiles could hear the gospel and be converted and graft into the olive tree, into kingdom privileges, into gospel conversion, and a second benefit, to provoke those blinded elect Jews to jealousy that in the end they also would be converted. All in one verse. And that is Romans 11. A summary statement in verse 11. God has caused elect Israelites, some of them, it's called part of Israel, part of elect Israel, in verse 25, part, to be blind to the gospel and to stumble over Christ so that the apostles would redirect the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles as the book of Acts describes. Especially Acts 13, 15, and 28 specifically says that the gospel was being redirected to Gentiles. Just like Jesus had told his apostles in Acts 1.8, ye shall be witnesses unto me, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess where we are? In the uttermost parts of the earth compared to the Middle East. So verses 11 through 15 are describing elect Israelites stumbling at the gospel for the Gentiles to get the gospel preached to them in verse 11. And then, so that those Gentiles being converted, do you know what it was like to Jews to have thousands of Gentiles being gathered together in exciting churches where they're using the Jewish scriptures to believe on the Jewish God, Jehovah, and His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David? It was blowing their minds. What are Gentiles becoming monotheists for when they're all polytheists? The pantheon of Greece and Rome with all their gods. All of a sudden these Gentiles are believing one, Charlie. And they're calling him Jehovah. And they're using the Old Testament scriptures. 
And they're looking for the son of David, and they say they have found him, and it's changing their lives. They're burning their books of witchcraft. They're destroying their idols to provoke them to jealousy. And the Apostle Paul says, to get the Gentiles excited about this, like I'm trying to get you excited about this, he says in verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, if those elect Jews not believing the gospel for a while brought the riches of the gospel kingdom to you Gentiles, and if it was the the diminishing of those elect Israelites by losing some of their privileges, how much more their fullness... If you benefited by the unbelief of elect Israelites, how much more should you benefit and rejoice in the belief of those elect Israelites? And then he says in 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. It was a mixed audience at Rome. But right there in that 13th verse, he wanted to grab the Gentiles and point out to them, don't you get too excited, don't you get proud, don't you get haughty, and don't you turn your back on the Jews because they've neglected such great privileges, God turned them away from those privileges so that you could get them. Now you be humble, you respect them, you fear because God could cut you off as well, and you be desirous of their conversion like I am. I'm teaching you Romans 9 through 11 because God has taught it to me and I love Him for it. Only He knows. There's no two men on planet earth that understand Romans 11 the same. It is a difficult chapter, and I I praise His holy name. Oh, 11 through 15 are describing, are elaborating on 11, 11, in that these elect Israelites were cast away just for a while for the reconciling of the world, but they're going to be received back again, verse 15. They're going to be like life from the dead. And then verses 16 through 24 describes how the Gentiles ought to respect Israel They ought to be humble. They ought to fear because God could break them off as well and that God will graft Israel back in again. So they ought not to be haughty about it, but they should have some evangelistic zeal as the apostle did. Now verses 25 through 29 were last Lord's Day. Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That is a restatement of what Romans 11 is about. It is the same statement as verse 11. 11 and 25 go together. There is a mystery. Some of this elect Israel is blind and stumbling over Jesus Christ so that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. But as soon as the gospel is fully turned to the Gentiles and the fullness of the emphasis on the Gentiles has been brought in, then that blindness is going to be lifted. From those Jews. 25 is a restatement of verse 11. And so all Israel shall be saved. Verse 26. What's all Israel? All elect Israel is going to be saved. The blind part. The the unblinded part. The seeing part. The Apostle Paul part. The Pentecost part. Plus those that were blinded are all going to be saved. How are they going to be saved? The way anybody is saved. By the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of Zion and turning away their sins, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Verse 28 is the summary of the chapter. Now I've said that several times about important verses. 11 and 25 are important summary verses, but 28 is as well explaining it in different terminology. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. So we're describing those that were stumbling over Christ and were enemies of the gospel. They opposed the Apostle Paul in his preaching. 
but as touching the election. The election. The election in this chapter. The election of grace. Verse 6. They are beloved for the Father's sakes. The Father's is plural with the apostrophe on the right side of the S. That means it's plural fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would always have a seed. And so we have verse 28 explaining that there are some unconverted elect that are in the election, and they're unconverted right now because God kept them from conversion in order for the Gentiles to be converted, for the Gentiles then to provoke them to jealousy and to serve them like the Apostle Paul served them, wanting to see some of them saved, as he says in verse 14. And so we come to verse 30. And I'll read to you verses 30 through 32. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Amen. The chapter, this, this little summary, which really ends Romans chapter 11, because verses 33 through 36 are Paul's exclamatory praise. They're not pertaining to Israel. It's just Paul blessing the Most High God for His great mercy in the depth of the riches of His wisdom and so forth. 30 through 32 actually wrap up this chapter, so they should be wrapping up what we've already covered in these verses, and that is indeed what they do. For as ye... Verse 30, in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so. There's one of those as, even so constructions. There's as in verse 30, there's even so in verse 31, which means that there is something very comparable being take, taking place. There's two things being compared and they're just like each other. Verses 30 and 31. Through the Jewish unbelief, the Gentiles were converted in chapter, in verse 30. Through the Jewish unbelief, they're going to obtain God's mercy for belief in 31. Let's go over it a little, a little more closely. As we analyze this section, we want to identify the parties and the time frame in mind of verses 30 through 32. Are these Gentiles not believing for 4,000 years of world history? Or 2,000 years of Jewish history? Or are these the Gentile generation then living that obtain mercy through Jewish unbelief? Did Jewish unbelief help Gentiles at any other point in time except that generation? No. no. Jewish unbelief did not help them. We are dealing with a generational issue here in 30 through 32 like we have been dealing with throughout the whole chapter. Right. How did Gentiles from Adam to Christ find mercy by Jewish unbelief in Paul's generation? They didn't. Why no mention by Paul of fathers or descendants, which can be done? The Apostle Paul knows how to say, all our fathers, 1 Corinthians 10.1. He knows how to refer to children, like Peter did in Acts 2.39, for the promises unto you and to your children, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. The Holy Spirit knows how to frame such sentences and such clauses to remove us from the present generation. But there's no reason for it because this is a transitional generation chapter of the Bible. The time period between 30 A.D. of John the Baptist preaching and 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem wiping out Israel as a covenant nation 
There was no temple left. There was no city left. There was no altar. There was no priesthood. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no Holy of Holies. That 40-year period was very important. In Hebrews 9, 10, it is called the time of reformation. For that 40-year period, the two covenants ran side by side. You, you could worship in the temple like the Apostle Paul did in the last few chapters of Acts, and you were following the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized in His name. They were running side by side. It was a very important time, and it's during that time that God took the kingdom away from the Jews and gave it to the Gentiles, just as He had prophesied. Do you remember the parables that we've gone over the last month or two? Matthew chapter 21, the vineyard was taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles because the Jews wouldn't pay him the fruits of the vineyard. Matthew 21. And so he says he's going to give it to a nation that will give him fruits in their season, which the Gentiles did. Matthew 22, a king made a marriage supper for his son. The Jews wouldn't come to it. So the king sent his servants, meaning his apostles, out into the highways to compel everyone they found. That means strangers abroad, meaning Gentiles, to come in. And so it was filled out with guests in the church of the Gentiles. Verse 30, For as ye, you Gentiles, that I'm addressing, as verse 13 told us, as ye Gentiles in times past have not believed God, yet you Gentiles have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Who's the there? The part of Israel that's blind. The part of Israel that is elect for the Father's sakes, but are enemies of the gospel for the Gentiles' sakes. It just said that in verse 28. Verse 30 should be no big surprise. It's just a restatement of 11.11. It's a restatement of 25. It's a restatement of 28. For I'm going to read it again, trying to put some antecedents on the pronouns. For as ye Gentiles in times past have not believed God, earlier in their lives, because it's a generational passage primarily, because no one before their lives benefited from Jewish unbelief. I don't need to say that again. I hope that you can reason through that and understand it. That while the Gentiles were in darkness for a long time, that isn't really Paul's issue right now. The real issue is of a transitional generation. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now, now, while Paul was alive, obtained mercy for gospel conversion and an addition to his kingdom through their elect Israelites' unbelief. Even so, have these unbelieving Israelites also now, not future, 2,000 years, now, Paul's time, not believed that through your you Gentiles' mercy, they also may obtain mercy. And the mercy of this passage is not the mercy of everlasting life. The mercy of this passage is gospel conversion. They've been withheld from that, but they're going to get it. Because as you Gentiles benefited by their unbelief, they're still unbelieving in order for you Gentiles to assist in them obtaining that gospel conversion by God's mercy. Because the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in, they no longer need to be blind to get the gospel redirected to the Gentiles. Oh, so much could be said. The time goes so rapidly. My brethren, you have no idea. I have an enemy back there on the wall just pounding me. And I'm, I'm not trying to be frivolous in the middle of a sermon. I could go for hours. I have hours of material, and it's all posted on the website already, by the way. 
Because anything you want to find out about Romans chapter 11, please go take a look at our website there and look at that outline. If there's any suggestions you can make for it to be more readable or usable to you, I'll be happy to take criticisms. Uh, when you get in the forest, sometimes you can get wrapped up in the trees a little too much. And um, I'll take I'll take help if you want to look at it. But it's there for your help and it's there for others that might find this particular chapter being dealt with on our website. Verse 30, For as you Gentiles in times past have not believed God, you were unbelievers, yet have now obtained mercy to believe through their unbelief, even so have these blinded Jews also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. You can now show them, because you're believers, some mercy by having a church that the way it ought to be, and provoking them to jealousy, by sending financial aid to the churches of Judea, which the New Testament describes, to show them mercy and to send me on my way so that I and other apostles can preach to them and they can be converted. Verse 32, For God hath concluded them. Now that them is a third person pronoun. So it's got to be referring to third person. Notice how Paul's addressing the Gentiles in the second person. He's addressing the Jews the blind elect Jews, in the third person. He keeps doing that right here. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief. Concluded is to include them in, to shut them up to, to put them over to their blindness. The great God that elected some to eternal life for the fathers had blinded this portion of Israel. For God hath concluded them, or included them, all in unbelief. That is the part of Israel that's elect that God chose to blind. Why did He do it? Now, he did it for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, but he also did it for their eventual conversion. That through your mercy, no, verse 32, that he might have mercy upon all. The unbelief, the unbelief of elect Israelites was for mercy upon all. And there's no them all in the second clause of verse 32. It's only all because it is by Jewish unbelief that resulted in God's mercy going first to Gentiles, and then back to themselves. Because of the benefit the Gentiles received, that the Gentiles would return to the Jews. In Romans 15, it's put this way, the Gentiles are debtors to the Jews. And that debt ought to be repaid. And so when the apostle took monetary support from Gentile churches in Greece and Turkey, across the Mediterranean to Israel, he said it was a being a repayment of debt because the Gentiles had benefited spiritually from the Jews, and now it was the Gentiles' turn to repay it in carnal things. Right. Now listen, that had never happened in the history of the world, really, that Gentiles got excited about supporting Jews voluntarily. You know, Gentiles had supported Jews by tribute when David was beating them on the battlefield, but they had very seldom done what was now being done, and the apostle described it as what we're describing here, and wanting to have Paul's ambition for them. You remember from verses 11 through 15, there's a lot of provoking of, Jew, of Gentile hearts that they should be looking forward to and have the same ambition Paul did for these blind elect Israelites out of gratitude for what it brought to the Gentiles. And what a tremendous thing it would be when there were Gen Jews added back into the church. So verse 32, God hath concluded them all, those that, that blinded part of elect Israel in unbelief. God concluded them in all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. His intent all along was that both elect Gentiles and elect Jews, all of them, would benefit from the gospel. 
But first of all, they would be blinded so that the gospel would go to those Gentiles and then those Gentiles could assist in seeing those blind part of Jews converted again. And so we have verses 30 through 32. In times past, this generation of Gentiles didn't believe, but they had now believed because the gospel had gone to them because of Jewish blindness. Even so, there was another turnabout now in verse 31. Those blinded Jews were still unbelieving that through the mercy of the Gentiles, they could obtain that same mercy of gospel conversion. For God hath concluded them in unbelief that in the long run, they would all benefit. Gentiles would benefit first, and then those Jews would benefit themselves. They would all benefit by the mercy of gospel conversion and being brought into kingdom privileges, first Gentiles, then the Jews, they'd all end up that way converted because the Gentiles would assist in the latter one because of them being blessed by the Jewish unbelief in the first turn, which is verse 30 here. It's verse 11, same thing. Why have, why have some of elect Israel fallen? That salvation can come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Gentiles saved so that eventually those same Jews can be saved by watching all these Gentiles believing what those Jews should have believed in the first place. And so wraps up Romans chapter 11. Except for this. And if you've, if you've read Romans 9 with understanding, verses 33 through 36 should be natural. Amen. By natural I meaning to a spiritual man only. If you've loved Romans 11 and seen in it the incredible wisdom of God, verse 11 is just describing that God would blind certain elect Israelites so that Gentiles could be converted, but he had in his mind that they would be converted in the end themselves by the Gentiles provoking them to jealousy and by assisting in evangelism of them. Do you understand that the only people in the world that had the true religion of God were Jews? And now Gentiles... Listen, do you know how bright Gentiles were? Romans 1 describes the brightness of Gentiles. They worship bugs and creeping things and beasts. They were sodomites. All of a sudden, those Gentiles were going to be evangelizing Jews. Hello? Hello? Is that... Does that get you excited at all, or have you missed the point? That is incredibly exciting. If the offering plate was passed, and the Apostle Paul had just made an appeal that there were apostles and preachers in Judea that needed help to preach the gospel to Jews, and they were meeting with some success now, would you, would you be able to get a five out of your wallet and put it in the offering plate? Or would you mortgage your house? And what, where's your heart at? Is it like the apostle? Continual sorrow, great heaviness in my heart for my kinsmen. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that might be saved. Then he explains why they weren't believing the gospel. It was for the gospel to go to you Gentiles. What should the Gentiles do but get as excited as Paul was about them and show them some mercy in return so that all could have mercy? He concluded part of elect Israel in unbelief, verse 32, so that all elect Gentiles and elect Jews would have that mercy in the end. Who is able to consider such things? And so the apostle says this. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
You say, why do you emphasize Scripture like that? Because there's an exclamation point! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him? And it shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Do you like Romans 5? Does Romans 5 deserve this kind of an exclamation? 4, 8, 9, 11. Do those chapters deserve this kind of an exclamation? If you understand them, they do. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We're bound to give thanks. And so the apostle does here in one of his exclamations, Do you love our brother Paul? He's writing a letter to a church. You know, he's sitting there dictating and it's being written by Tertius. Tertius is writing it down and he's, Oh, he's just getting worked up as he tells them Romans 9, 10, 11. The power of God is upon him. The Holy Spirit of God has put the words in his tongue and he's speaking them and Tertius is writing them down and he just, oh, the death! You say, I just don't feel that way about salvation. I don't know if you're saved. Because if you understood salvation, that's the way you'd respond. And yes, I would just love to scream it a whole lot louder. I did yesterday because my wife wasn't home. And I'm not. Oh, the depth of the riches. Do you like Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Do you ever say that when you're driving? Amen. Do you ever say that in the shower? Do you ever say that in the house? Do you ever say it in the deck? Do you say those words? Mm-hmm. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. That's David. Paul and David, are they alike? How are they alike? What made them alike? One spirit. Motivating both of them. And I want that one spirit in you and I want that one spirit in me. I want that one spirit like Stephen explained this morning. I want that one spirit like Nathan explained in the back room that we have a heart like David. We have a heart like Paul. Oh, the depth. Oh, there's so, you know we could go a while on these verses, but let's just rejoice in the forest that they create in these four verses about the glorious wisdom and knowledge of God. The apostle begins one of his ex, Exclamatory statements. I showed you another one this morning in opening this assembly from 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever. Amen. And then he goes on writing Timothy. You know how we write letters? How are you? I am fine. I've warned you about that before. We can do better, can't we? Do you know what the Bible says we can start with? Let the Lord be magnified. The Lord bless thee. The Lord be with you. All glory to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you're afraid of being thought a little uh, twisted, a little, little extreme maybe, a little apostolic, like maybe you're trying to be an apostle. But we can do better than, how are you? I am fine. This is how the apostle wrote. Oh, the depth. The depth is the penetration, the profundity, 
That means how profound it is, the sagacity, the intelligence of God, how deep it is, how explorative it is, how far it reaches, the depth. But he doesn't just say the depth. I love his combinations, and they're by the Holy Spirit of God. The depth of the riches. That's piled deeper and stacked higher and broader. You look into this vault for riches, and they're stacked so deep you can't get to the bottom of the vault. You're shoveling it. You're bulldozing it. You've got an earth mover in there. You've got a crane. And you can't get to the bottom. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the wonderful combination of depth and riches is applied to God's wisdom and knowledge. God's wisdom is His independent... Listen, just think about the words. When it it speaks of God's wisdom, His independent genius to identify creative and perfect solutions and the means to them. Don't ever let me complain about studying. I do complain about that thing. But I don't complain about studying because thinking through verses like this are pure pleasure. And trying to find the best cross-references to be able to use, it's a wonderful thing. God's knowledge is the intimate and complete comprehension of all matters in breadth and depth for perfect perception of them. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And it ends with an exclamation point. You want a couple cross-references? Where would you like to go? Psalm 147 and verse 5. Psalm 147 and verse 5. I'm motivated to finish the chapter. Listen, if you want to look at verses, then pull the outline. It's already out there. I did something very unusual. The outline was out there before I preached it. Psalm 147 and verse 5. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Look at Job 37 and verse 16. Back to the book before Psalms 37 and verse 16. Glory with me, brethren. Why are you alive? Why do you have existence? To glorify God. That is why we're alive. There's no other purpose for us. It's to give God glory. Let's fulfill our destiny today. Job 37 and verse 16, Dost thou know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him, which is perfect in knowledge? Who can hang so much water up in the sky? Billions of tons. And drop it. And he dropped it, didn't he? I'm sorry, Dave and Jody. They had a basement flood on Wednesday evening. Oh, Lord, we bless you and praise you in spite of that. Sorry, I mean, no harm to you at all, and you know that. But he, he, the, the balancing of the clouds, dost thou know the... How, how do you balance billions of tons of weight in the sky that just floats along like cotton candy? And you can fly an airplane right through it. Now, can you fly an airplane through the Atlantic Ocean? When it hits the Atlantic Ocean at 500 miles an hour, it is like hitting concrete. Ask John F. Kennedy Jr. And I make no fun of anyone. I'm sorry that that event happened. I trust the living God for all things. But how do you fly an airplane through billions of tons of water that are being balanced in the air like cotton candy? Because it says, it's his wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge. 
he has he has intimate deep he has intimate awareness and comprehension of all the aspects of water moisture and he has wisdom that is independent genius in coming to a creative solution that gives him glory right. and provides water for our gardens um, i love the lord amen have i ever preached on knowing god mm-hmm. good I think we took 50 week, 50 sermons to get that out of my belly because he's so wonderful and there's so many verses like that. The blogs that we had in this church where the men and the women contributed verses like Job 37, 16, that was wonderful exercise. Back to Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Does the Bible say that his greatness is unsearchable? Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. This is the apostle just bursting forth into praise, and you should, and I should. Today ought to be the happiest days of our lives, because the Lord's added just a little bit more knowledge to us about His workings in saving men, and in bringing the gospel to us Gentiles. Should be the happiest day of our... Why are you going to say that a year ago was the happiest day of your life? Then the Lord has a controversy with you as to why you're not as happy today as you were a year ago. He calls that losing your first love. Rejoice with me today. Shout with me. Go home and run through your house and make some noise. We will in the second service. Lord helping us. We'll make some noise together. Lord, just hold... Hold for us and let me get through these verses. We're so thankful for them. How unsearchable are His judgments. His judgment of determining that there would be elect Israelites that would miss the gospel and some of them would die in their disbelief and not know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a way that would give them confidence and peace about their justification before God and yet He would give it to pagan Gentiles that would worship creeping things and four-footed beasts. And then those creeping things and those guys that worship creeping things and four-footed beasts could turn and help evangelize those Jews in one generation. How unsearchable are his judgments Amen. and his ways past finding out. And do you know why this is right here? Another, there's lots of re- there's reasons why it's here. This statement right here. Have you ever presented the doctrine of election to someone that's an Arminian? Well, if God's like that, then I don't want anything to do with him. His ways are unsearchable. You present Romans 5 to someone and explain to them that every baby that has died was responsible for eating the fruit off the knowledge of the tree of good and evil in Romans chapter 5, and you'll find out the hatred of man for the wisdom and, ju- and knowledge of God. Right. How, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? How can God bless Phinehas for a thousand generations for killing an adulterer and forgive David, and let David and Bathsheba give birth to Solomon. Right. Are his judgments unsearchable? Amen. And his ways past finding out? Right. Why would Jews that were his chosen people be blind to the gospel that were actually elected in the book of life? And these pagan Gentiles would be brought in. You present election to someone that doesn't believe election. You present election to an Arminian. And because they can't figure it out, and because it doesn't make sense to their little minds, they hate it. But notice what Paul is saying about what he has just revealed to us in 11 chapters. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How he could raise up Moses and Pharaoh in the same household 
and drowned the one in the Red Sea that belonged in that household and the one that didn't belong there to take two million people out of Egypt. Right. How, is it mentioned in Romans chapter 9? Mm-hmm. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? See, verse 33 said that we can't search out God's wisdom and knowledge. They're past finding out. And so then the ridicule begins a little bit about natural man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Look at Isaiah 40 to see where Paul got this expression from. Paul used it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But notice in, in Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 30, oh, the, Isaiah is just blessing the Lord in those, the, the, the 40 chapters. Isaiah 40 through 48 are fantastic chapters in the Bible. If you're ever wondering where to read that you just want to lift God up and glorify Him, go read Isaiah 40 through 48. Amen. Verse 12 of Isaiah 40, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? The Pacific Ocean is measured in the hollow. How much water can the hollow of your hand hold? Eight ounces? I speak as a fool. One? A half? He holds the Pacific Ocean and all the other oceans as well in the hollow of His hand. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and meted out heaven with the span? The span is this. Thumb, little finger, nine inches, one half of the cubit from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. That is half of this. He measures out the universe with this. That means He, you know... When you're young and you're growing up and you're thinking of playing the piano, you walk over to a piano and see if you can get that thumb on middle C and that little finger on the next C to see if you can span an octave. Ah, the Lord spans the universe. He just wants you to know that. His hand's pretty big. If it can hold the Pacific Ocean there, then I guess it can do this and cover the universe. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? He's got Mount Everest, all six miles of it high, in his balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? See, there's where the Apostle Paul pulls these words from because guess what? Isaiah and David and Paul were just alike. Now do you belong fourth in that list? Thank you. Isaiah, David, and Paul. Do you want to rejoice just like them? Who has been a counselor to the Lord to help him do any of this? He does it in creation. He does it in salvation. Oh, the depth of the riches. Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In the balancing of the clouds and in measuring out the universe with a span and in saving us and in bringing the gospel to us Gentiles. Those Jews weren't going to preach to Gentiles. We were second-class citizens of the earth. They weren't going to waste their time on us. But the Lord got them there, didn't He? Jewish preachers converted Gentiles, and Gentile preachers ended up, and Gentile support ended up converting Jews. All in the wisdom of God. Who hath been His counselor? Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath first given to Him? God isn't in debt to anyone. No one is given to God, and He owes that man back anything. Who hath first given to Him? Who's done something that God considers impressive and is going to return favors to you? Who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? That is not the case with God. God initiates every bit of salvation. God initiated every bit of creation. You didn't contribute one thing. 
to your birth, did you? What were you thinking about when you were conceived? That God did all of this. Weren't you thinking that? You weren't thinking anything. You've never given to God and He's in debt to you. There's much that could be said about these verses. They are just lifting up salvation. They're lifting up all of God's dealings with men. All that we have read in chapters 1 through 11 is not based on what men did to God. It's what God did for them and what they owe Him. We should be recompensing God for what He's done for us, not God recompensing us for what we've done for Him. The Arminians... If you, if you think about their theology, when we get to heaven, it's going to be God recompensing men for what they did on earth by treating His Son a certain way or by treating the Jews a certain way or by getting baptized or by keeping sacraments. But it's all of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And we should be recompensing Him by lifting up His voice and loving Him from our hearts with singing praise from our lips. We've, we've never given to Him that He owed us anything in return. He's given everything to us, and we owe Him everything in return. Verse 36, you want to bring this baby to a conclusion? For of Him, that is Almighty God, Romans 11.36, for of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, this is the God that we worship for of Him. He is the first cause of all things. If there was ever a big bang, it is because God said, let there be light. And bang, there was light. He is the first cause. He is the origin of all things. All you need is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Amen. What was there in the beginning? God. Where did everything else come from? The next verb. In the beginning, God created. He is the first cause of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the object, the purpose, the end, and the glory of all things. Everything exists. For His praise and glory. Everything is sustained by His preservation. And everything came from Him. Look at Jeremiah 10 with me. Give me just a few more minutes, brethren. Jeremiah chapter 10. Oh Lord, I love Thy Word. I want Your people to love it. I love this verse. Thou art worthy of all the praise and glory that we can give You forever by our lives, by our lips, by our hearts. Jehovah is the first cause of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's everything. That's all things. He is the first cause of all things. Jeremiah chapter 10. Oh, where do I start? Verse 12. Let me start way back at verse 12. Just just enjoy these. Rejoice with me. Let's go to verse 11. Sorry. Let's go to verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. This is God against the gods of Babylon. But the Lord, all caps, Jehovah, I am that I am, our God, by name. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. 
At His wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Do you like the ridicule? He hath made the earth by His power, that is, our God. He hath established the world by His wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by His discretion. When He uttereth His voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of His treasuries. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. That's when Cyrus gets to Babylon by the hand of God. Now verse 16 is what I wanted. The portion of Jacob, that's the God of Jacob, is not like them, those gods. For he is the former of all things. And Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is the former of all things. All things, he was before them. He is the former of all things. See, gods were the latter of all things. Because there had to be men to take gold, to take silver, to take wood with a chainsaw and make themselves a totem pole. They are the latter of all things. Oh well. For of him. He is the origin of all things. God is so different from idols by being the first cause that no temple rightly suits him, as Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. For of him are all things. He's the first cause. The only reason things exist is because God chose they should exist. The only reason you exist is because God chose that you would exist. And why do you exist? We're going to get to that in a moment. But how do you, how are you alive today? How old are you? 50? 60? How old are you? It's all by God preserving you because it says through Him. Through Him are all things. God is the source of salvation. God's the source of creation. God's the source of your existence. God's the source of this nation. This nation exists by the blessing of God to raise up this nation to put down others to make a way for it. We always want to remember that in everything we look at. And through Him, because He preserves us all. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. The word of God has the power to uphold all things. Not only did the word of God create all things, without Him was there anything made that was made. He upholds all things by the word of His power. In Colossians 1.16, it's put this way, By Him all things consist. Amen. They're held together by the power of Almighty God. Right. Or atoms would fly apart with all the energy that is confined with inside them. They'd explode. Every, all the atoms. The smallest, the smallest little particles we know about. And the little particles that are blasting around them would explode, but it's, it's, it consists by the power of God. And that's when we're thinking about creation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Everything is through God. He upholds all things. He doesn't need anything from us. For it is He that gives breath to all and all that they need. And therefore, it's ridiculous for us to think that we can give anything to God made with our hands. 
as Paul preached also on Mars Hill to idolaters in the city of Athens, Greece. Everything you can imagine, but especially salvation is kept by him. Without me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. You are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 5. Preserved in Christ Jesus, Jude 1, 1. Salvation originated with God. Salvation is preserved by God. I shall lose none of them, Jesus said. And then it's to God, for of him and through him and to him are all things. Where do you want to go for that one? Since you're at Hebrews, look at the second verse. Hebrews 1-2, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus Christ has inherited the universe, and it was made for his inheritance. Right. For of him, the Word of God, the Son of God, created all things in his divine nature. He upholds them all, and they all consist. For what purpose? For him to inherit them and make the earth his footstool as he rules it all with a rod of iron. It's to him. It's to his honor and glory. Revelation 4.11, we sing it. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things of him, and for thy pleasure they are and were created to him. It's for his pleasure. You exist for the pleasure of God. Are you giving Him pleasure or are you grieving Him? Are you giving Him pleasure or are you disappointing Him? Are you giving Him pleasure or are you frustrating Him? Are you giving Him pleasure or are you angering Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. That's of Him. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's to Him. Look at Colossians chapter 1, where the same apostle, surprise, surprise, would summarize these things the same way. Colossians chapter 1. Pharaoh was conceived, preserved, and prospered for one end. Pharaoh was of him. He was conceived by God. Pharaoh was through him. He was preserved by God. And to him, what happened to Pharaoh in the midst of the Red Sea was that God could get himself a name upon the greatest man on earth. Exodus 9.16, Romans 9.17, both teach us that. When things are going well for you, don't think too highly of them. In the day of adversity and in the day of prosperity, make sure you humble yourself before God because he could be lifting you up for a fall. If you don't know that yet, you're not perceptive enough. Let's give him glory and not put a trust in anything else but him. Amen. Look at Colossians 1 where the same apostle uses similar language. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 16, for by him... That is, Jesus Christ in His divine nature, by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. 
and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This is a description by the Apostle Paul about the glory of our great God. He is the creator of it all. He is the end and object of it all. He preserves it all. By him all those things consist, and he is the former of all those things, because he is before all of them, just like Jeremiah 10 taught, to whom be glory forever. Do you know why you've been saved? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. That in the ages to come, we might speak to him of his grace and kindness in us through Christ Jesus our Lord. All things, brethren, but especially salvation because of this epistle. To whom be glory forever. There's absolutely no basis, no logic, no room for arguing or resisting God. There's no basis, no logic, no room for any glory to man in salvation or anything else. It all belongs to God. What effect should knowing the mystery of salvation have on us? Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding great joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.